So you have this idea of um, the, the pleasing fragrance. So let me just say that one of Hafeman's idea is that this fragrance rising up to God, now Paul has switched from trial procession imagery to Old Testament sacrificial imagery. There's a real problem with that because the, the form of the language that, that is in this passage is never used of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Those two words are used, but in the Old Testament, when they're used of sacrifice, they're, they're in a very specific formula. And that formula is not here. In fact, throughout the ancient world, when these two words are used together and in that formula from the Old Testament, it always refers to sacrifice. And when they're used outside of that formula, they're always referring to just good or bad smells. Always. So we don't have time to go into great detail there. Uh, the two words are used extensively in the Old Testament, but you'll just have to take my, uh, take my word for it um, at this point. So in every case, when these words are used, as they're used in this passage, they're just used for pleasing or stinky smells with osme or real positive fragrances with euodia, all right? So uh, that's, a, that's a very consistent dynamic that we have that I think affects our understanding of the passage. Now, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's not switching to Old Testament sacrificial language. He's using the image from the triumphal procession of incense bearers. Because one of the dynamics in the parade is you may have a couple of hundred people walking through the parade, spread throughout the parade, carrying bowls of incense or censers that had burning incense so that along the parade route, you've got this incense rising up to the gods. And so it's very pleasing to those people who are on the Roman side. It smells great to them, but... It would not have smelled good to those who had lost because that smell of that incense would be reminding them of their loss. All right? So he's using the image, and this was common in the, uh, the triumphal procession parades to have these incense bearers who were going along. So what I think Paul is doing here is he's depicting himself in his mission as incense bearers in the parade. So it's like, if you use the imagery, Paul is, he's got the gospel, and the gospel is being proclaimed out there in the world. So it's the gospel is wafting out over humanity. And Paul is going to say, to some people it smells good, to some people they smell the gospel, the fragrance of the gospel, and to them it stinks because, you know what, it speaks of their death, and it speaks of, their impending destruction at the end of the age. All right? So the gospel as incense bearing. So Paul is, is proclaiming himself as a gospel bearer. He's depicting himself as a gospel bearer. I think the, the implication of this is that the nature of authentic ministry is to be a person who, who just... Naturally, what we're doing is we are bearing witness to the gospel in the world. I mean, wherever we are, wherever God is leading us, we are people who are out there bearing witness to the gospel in the world. We were talking uh, at the break about the fact that um, we're at a point in our cultural moment 
where we can't assume that the methods that we've been using for evangelism are going to work with profoundly secular people. And I think we talked about that a little bit this morning. But uh, we're, we're at a moment where we've got to embody the gospel and we've got to think about the proclamation of the gospel and how we communicate the gospel to really secular people. We still have pockets of traditionalism here in the South where the old methods will work a little bit. For, for, for the great extent in our culture, it's gone. There are secular people who, who they struggle with having any concept of what we're talking about if we're assuming they know what we mean when we talk about God and authority and truth and uh, all of those kind of things. They just don't have a reference point in terms of the way they see the world to deal with those kind of things. But I think what Paul is saying here is, as we are led by Christ in the victory of Christ, understand that Christ is the, is the Lord of the universe, and we go through life as God is calling us into all the different areas of life and ministry, and our natural impulse is to communicate with all that we are the nature of the good news that Jesus Christ really is Lord of the universe, that he has paid for sin in a decisive way, that we don't have to live under guilt and under our own uh, expectations of our ability to make life meaningful. And as we go out and we live in the world like that, then that gospel message is going to penetrate and it's going to make a difference. And there are going to be some people who respond and there are going to be other people who hate it but we need to figure out what it means to embody the gospel and make, that, make the gospel clear to people in our cultural situation. You know, I was talking about my friends in Israel. And one night, uh, Hani, who is one of the Arab brothers, who is from Nazareth, um, said, you know, why don't I give you a walking tour tonight of Nazareth? Of course, this is where the Basilica of the Annunciation is, which is the traditional site of Jesus' boyhood home. So I would be in the middle of teaching, and all of a sudden I would start talking about when Jesus was growing up, and it would dawn on me where I was, and I would say, like, right out there, you know, in Nazareth. And so Honey said, why don't I take you around for a walking tour uh, tonight? And when we were down in the lobby getting ready to leave, three of the Jewish guys said, uh, can we come too? And they said, yeah, it's great. So uh, three Jewish guys, an Arab guy and I, took off at 9 o'clock at night, walking through dark alleys in a city that's 60% Arab. It was a very, very interesting experience. And it was very safe, by the way, very safe. But we made our way down to the Basilica of the Annunciation, and we're standing outside the Basilica, and two Arab, older Arab men came walking up the street and we started talking to them. And one of the Arab guys, older Arab guys, was a tour guide. And he started giving us an impromptu history lesson on the Basilica, when it was built, why it was built, why it's divided into three different churches and all this kind of thing. And it was fascinating, very, very interesting. But we got to the end of that conversation and the other Arab guy said to Hani... He said, um, you know, help me out with something here. I'm a little confused. He said, you're an Arab, and these three guys are Jewish. What's up with that? Because Arabs and Jews don't, don't mix normally, socially and culturally. I mean, you don't have, like, friendships where you're going out and hanging out with people. 
And it wasn't that he was, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to be ugly. He just was genuinely confused by the situation. And without missing a beat, the Arab guy and my three Jewish friends all said, oh, it's because of Yeshua. Now, you have to understand, this is in a culture where it is not popular to follow Jesus, either from a Jewish or an Arab standpoint. Now, there are Arab Christians there, but these guys didn't have to process it. They didn't stop and think, would this be a wise thing to do at this moment? My point is that it was just so natural to them. It's so embodied in who they are that their natural impulse was that when there was opportunity there, that's just a natural thing to do is that the fragrance of the gospel just comes wafting out as they are living under the Lordship of Christ. And I think part of it wafts out like that because they're vessels that have been have been broken just because they live in a society that doesn't like what they're doing to a great extent. And so what Paul is doing is he's using the imagery of the fragrance and aroma to speak of the gospel wafting out over humanity. Now, what about the last part of the passage? The last part of the passage, that's Nazareth, by the way. Sorry, I didn't uh, give you a look at that. But the last part of the passage, he goes on and he speaks about this idea of those who are being saved and those who are being led to death, who are going to death. What's going on with that imagery? Well, uh, that brings us to a third point, and that is that we need to understand that authentic ministry functions as a dividing line of humanity, that authentic ministry functions as a dividing line for humanity. The principle here is that we need to live in Christ's adequacy for a cosmic size mission. I mean, you do understand that we in this room have the most important mission in the universe. Do you, I mean, we understand that, right? That if Jesus Christ is really Lord, that He is sitting on the throne of the universe, that God has been working literally throughout history to bring things to a culmination where His bride would be prepared for the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of the age, that what we are involved in as the gospel advances in the world is the most important thing that's happening in the world right now. It's cosmic size. People's eternities are in the balance. It's a dividing line. And so he uses this language of those who are being saved and those who are being destroyed. So what's this referring to? The death part, let me go back, sorry. The captives, this is supposed to be surrounding the idea of death, leading to death, I think is the reference to the captives in the parade. And what he has in mind there is that those people who are under the influence of the gospel, the wafting out of the gospel in the world, and they reject it. They say, yeah, we hear what you're saying, Paul. We hate that idea. We do not like the gospel that you're proclaiming. We think it's wrong-headed. To us, what you're saying stinks. And Paul says it speaks to death. I think in the imagery of the triumphal procession, uh, you can imagine that those captives remembered the death of their friends back on the battlefield and they're anticipating their own death. He uses that imagery to say that 
For those who are responding to the gospel negatively, it's arising out of their spiritual death. And it heralds their destruction at the end of the age and under the judgment of God. So if that's the case, then who are the saved? Because he goes on and says, To some we are a stench, but to others we are an aroma of life that leads to life. The language of salvation that's used here in this passage uh, is very common in the ancient world. And it could, it could refer to uh, the spiritual stuff, the way we normally use the word salvation. But it also was used to things like being healed from illness. And another main way it was used is when you were a captive, when you were a, um, a person who had been enslaved in war and then you were liberated... So in other words, your side finally won the war and you were set free from your captivity. You were said, literally, you were said to have been saved in that situation. In fact, I think the imagery that Paul is using here is the image of the liberated. Those who are being saved, uh, they would come and at times a couple of thousand of those liberated slaves who had been enslaved in that foreign land when the Romans won They were released and they came home and they marched in the parade as the liberated, the saved, in honor of the triumphator. And I think what Paul is saying is that when we go and we preach the gospel in the world and people get saved, they come to a knowledge of Christ. They're saved from their sin. They're saved from destruction. Uh, To them, the gospel is a sweet smell that arises out of life and speaks of their whole life opening up in front of them. Let me read you one passage on the liberated that's pretty cool. You have this passage from Plutarch. He's uh, referring to the victory of Flamininus, Titus Flamininus. And uh, Flamininus had gone and defeated the Greeks. And he, um, he, had, he had won the battle. And what happened when he got there uh, is all of his soldiers, you know, they won the battle. They started coming into the main parts of the city. And all of the slaves, Roman citizens who had been enslaved in Greece, started coming out of the houses and and meeting friends and brothers and cousins who were in the Roman army who had just won the battle. And for some reason, Flamininus didn't feel like he could just demand that all of those slaves be released because it would mess up the culture and all, I don't understand all the particulars in terms of the social uh, thing there. But, but basically, he didn't feel like he could just demand that all, the, all of those Roman slaves be released. He just didn't do that in the ancient world. But then what happened was the Greeks came to him a little bit later and said, hey, guess what, we have a present for you. Because you wanted to be nice to the victors so that they'd be nice to you, you know, after, after this was all over. They said, we have a present for you. We are going to give you. We bought all of these Roman citizens out of slavery. We're going to give them to you, and you can take them back to Rome. Look, look at what it says, and then notice what it says about uh, their role in the triumphal procession. But the Achaeans, that's the Greeks, ransomed them all at five minas the man, collected them together. These are the Roman citizens who had been enslaved, and made a present of them to Titus just as he was about to leave. So that he sailed from home with a glad heart. His noble deeds had brought him a noble recompense and one befitting a great man who loved his fellow citizens. This appears to have furnished his triumph 
his parade with its most glorious feature. For these men shaved their heads and wore felt caps as it is customary for slaves to do when they have been set free. And in this habit, this manner of dress, they followed the triumphal car of Titus. So all those Roman citizens who, who were enslaved in Greece when the war was over, they got released, they came back home, they marched right behind his chariot in the parade, going, this is our man, he set us free. Can you imagine what it had been like to have been a slave and then being released to go back home to your friends and family? That's the imagery that he's using here. So what's the takeaway of all this? Well, the takeaway is, what, what's the nature of authentic ministry? Authentic ministry is you follow the victorious Lord Christ through the world, embodying the gospel in a way that it naturally just exudes out of your life in your relationships with non-believers, and that gospel is going to have positive effects and negative effects. Some people are going to respond positively. Their whole life is going to open up in front of them because of the gospel. Some people are going to hate what you're doing. But authenticity means that we follow Christ in this process of sharing the gospel with the world. Does that make sense? You get the imagery there, what he's, what he's trying to do with the imagery. Paul's not positioning himself as a captive who's on his way to death. That's not what he's doing. He sees himself as a bearer of the gospel at this point. Now, there are many places in 2 Corinthians where he is going to talk about dying in Christ, and, but that, this isn't one of them. Okay. All right. Let, let me see if you have any questions. We've kind of gone a little bit, a little bit long here. I'm, I may just um, figure out what we're going to do so I can share with you just at least a little bit of what happens in chapter three, verse seven through eighteen. But we're we're running on out of time pretty quickly. But thank you for your patience with the process. Um, do you have questions about this passage and the imagery? Because this is uh, kind of an anchor passage that then gives you the basis the foundation for everything he's doing through the center of the book from this point. Yes, sir. Jamie? Yeah. 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 Hafem, Scott Hafeman is a, is a great scholar. He's a friend of mine. He teaches at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Good scholar, and I really like Scott a lot. We, after my article came out... <laughs> On, um, on, you know, basically taking on his position and saying he's wrong for all these reasons. Uh, he came down to a conference where I was staying in, in England. I was kind of holding my breath a little bit because I thought, I wonder how he's going to respond, you know. And, and we just got along great. It was fine, you know. So, But his position is basically this, that the imagery when you start the passage is triumphal procession. So thanks be God who leads us in triumphal procession. So that's where the imagery is there. But then he would say that, especially with verse 15, you shift to the image of Old Testament sacrificial language so that now you move from the parade to the idea of an Old Testament sacrifice where the fragrance is rising up to God, right? So that's what he would, that's what, that's basically what he would say. He said, Paul uses the trial procession imagery to speak of himself as being led around dying as he does ministry. Uh, and then the Old Testament sacrificial stuff says, well, even though you die, this is pleasing to God and rising up to God. The problem with that is, uh, think about the positive and negative aroma language. You don't have that in the Old Testament when it speaks of sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifices. Yes.
There is, and he's, he's using the language metaphorically to point to that. So, yes, you're right, it's combining the two, but... Well, I, see, I would not use the word dialectic, and let me tell you why. Yeah, he, he wouldn't, I don't think he would think in those terms. Now, Paul is thoroughly Jewish. And when he is talking about his own identity, normally that's what he talks about, is how Jewish he is, right? But he is also a man of the Greco-Roman world, and he's not afraid to leverage his Romanness when it's, when it's time to do that, you know? Uh, so I wouldn't think of it as a dialectic back and forth. He's, he is taking from the language and imagery of both of his aspects of his world, his Jewishness and his Roman Greco-Romanness, and he's blending them together in a very powerful image, I think, that would have spoken, most importantly, to the Corinthian culture, to the Corinthians. So if any of us wrote a paper upholding that position, would we be shot down before we got out? In terms of the dialectic thing? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you will find other people in the academy who would talk in those terms in ter- in, as such, you know, dialectic, so... No, and I guess we all live in a bit of a dialectic dynamic, don't we, and kind of trying to keep the pieces of our world held together. You know, I'm a, I'm a Southerner, Tennessean, uh, and yet I'm also, you know, a person who is in the academy and does different... So I have different aspects to who I am. And at times, holding those worlds together can be a little hard, but, you know, anyway. So, that does that help? But yes, very rabbinic but also very much drawing from the imagery of his culture. Yes? Yes. You do, have, you do have Jews there. Remember, if you go back to 1 Corinthians, go back to Acts, the leader of the synagogue, two leaders of the synagogue probably, <laughs> came to Christ and joined the church. All right? So Jews, but very much Jews of the, of the diaspora. So Jews very much influenced by their Greco-Roman context. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been, if, if somebody brought this up in Corinthian context, everybody in the room would know exactly what Paul was alluding to, exactly. Just like if I'm coming and preaching to your church and saying, you know, uh, last year I went, to the tri- I went to the Super Bowl parade, just had a great time, everybody in the room would have images go off in their head of a Super Bowl parade. They know exactly what we're talking about, right? Okay, other, other questions? Other questions? So, so the takeaway is follow Christ in his victorious lordship, embody the gospel in a way that just kind of comes spilling out of you in the world, and then don't be surprised that some people don't like it. Don't be surprised. Loving, be whimsical. We need to be whimsical, and not get ugly and angry when people don't like what we're doing. But just share the gospel and, under, and understand that God's going to bring about results uh, from that process. Okay? We're going to take a 15-minute break, and we'll come back for our last hour together. All right? Thanks. <laughs>